On the other side of Texas, history has its place. On the other side of Texas, justice rules the case. They don't like it, they don't love it. They say we're all wrong, but on the other side of Texas halls, we roll along. Hey, thanks for tuning in and telling a friend that you hang out here on the other side of Texas. I'm your host, Jay West Texas Leeson, broadcasting from the Racer Car Wash Studios. Racer Car Wash, voted Lubbock's Best Wash for five years running. Stop into one of five convenient locations across Hub City. See your best location there. Racerwash.com just got in my Ancestry DNA and uh, looking... White as milk, as one might say. Daniel, the digital millennial, shaking his head. Um, let's see what we got here. Let me let me go to the official stats. Sixty-two percent England, Wales, and Northwestern European. Twenty-four percent Irish, Scottish, Germanic, European. Eleven percent Norway. Two percent. Getting hungry. He's making me hungry for shepherd's pie. Eastern and European Agus. and Russian. Agus. 1%. Did you hear that? 1% Russian. I'm not wanting potatoes and borscht. Russian. Hey, I uh, got our friends Brandon Darby. Vodka. A lot, as far as Brandon Darby, go. managing editor of Breitbart, Texas. Yeah. Collusion! Collusion! And uh, we got Coach Poe, Silas Polite, in with us here with uh, another episode. And. Going to kick off with, I mean, we can go into my DNA if you guys would like to. I mean, I always knew that I was I was up for the Midwestern Settlement, South, South uh, Eastern American, Southeastern American, huh? not South American. What about what charity? What's going on, dude? I, charity's not spitting the vial yet. I not don't know. Yet. What's going on here? You realize those things are wildly inaccurate, right? Do you realize that just because it tells you... I'm on the government list? Is that what you're saying? No, like, so so it's not inaccurate as far as trying to find a relative or something when it comes to DNA, but... It did it give me a bunch of my second no, and third cousins. It. When it reads to... When it, when it comes to... When it comes to determining what regions your ancestry's from, it's pretty, those things get pretty off, man. I know where they're from. They're not from New York because they got kicked out of New York oh. in Appalachia. Like... Most Irish Americans did in the tolerant northeastern United States. Now, get out of here. Get down to Appalachia. Make some music and uh, make some whiskey. Oh, all right. Well, congratulations, I guess. That's and then cool. eventually wound up in Abilene. We know how that happened. Yeah. Because even the people in, in Kentucky were like, hey, uh, Leeson clan, uh, I know you were with us when we got kicked out of New York by those intolerant people, but you got to get out of here. Being that we got kicked out of New York because of things that you guys did in public, (laughs) we're going to send you to Abilene, Texas. Sooner or later, Coach Poe, my uh, six generations ago, circuit riders for John Wesley down below the Cap Rock, and that's how we wound up here. What are you talking about? That's his, wait, my his ancestry. ancestry. Your ancestors were with his ancestors? No, no. we're Wesleyan brothers. Not that I know of yet. I haven't swapped my mouth to figure out what all I'm No, you got to spit in a volley. You got to spit like, like a lot. No. He's trying to make that G-rated for radio. 
No, you just spit for spit a long. You gotta spit a spit a vial. Yeah, that's what I did. Yeah. Maybe sure. that's why it's so inaccurate. Sure. Okay, that's why it's inaccurate. You know what? Okay. I wonder how many people don't read the instructions and send them like something else in the file. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, I bet it's happened. You're assuming that I read the instructions. No, but I'm, I bet it's happened, right? Like, yeah, think yeah. about it. They're probably like, oh, this isn't spit. <laughs> Let's Google that. Well, listen, I start with DNA and the history of this country. To start this episode, this is where I'm going to go. Uh, Tucker Carlson had a monologue uh, on Fox News, on this program that's gone viral and I think speaks not only to yesterday's past of whatever leasing tribe might have gotten kicked out of kentucky but to today it speaks to the the higher class and it speaks to the lower class and how that lower class brandon darby and this is where i want to really grind in with you how the lower class is not represented in american politics and how uh, Donald Trump rode in on that wave and where it lies today. Uh, Daniel, the digital guru, do you have that for us? Let's listen to it for just a moment. ...with an op-ed in the Washington Post that savaged Donald Trump's character and leadership. Romney's attack and Trump's response this morning on Twitter are the latest salvos in a long-standing personal feud between the two men. It's even possible that Romney is planning to challenge Trump for the Republican nomination in 2020. We'll see. But for now, Romney's piece is fascinating on its own terms and well worth reading. It's a window into how the people in charge in both parties see our country. Romney's main complaint in the piece is that Donald Trump is a mercurial and divisive leader. That's true, of course. But beneath the personal slights, Romney has a policy critique of Trump. He seems genuinely angry that Donald Trump might pull American troops out of the Syrian civil war. Romney doesn't explain how staying in Syria would benefit America. He doesn't appear to consider that a relevant question. More policing in the Middle East is always better. We know that. Virtually everyone in Washington agrees. Corporate tax cuts are also popular in Washington, and Romney is strongly on board with those, too. His piece throws a rare compliment to Trump for cutting the corporate rate a year ago. That's not surprising. Romney spent the bulk of his business career at a firm called Bain Capital. Bain Capital all but invented what is now a familiar business strategy. Take over an existing company for a short period of time, cut costs by firing employees, run up the debt, extract the wealth, and move on, sometimes leaving retirees without their earned pensions. Romney became fantastically rich doing this. Meanwhile, a remarkable number of the companies are now bankrupt or extinct. This is the private equity model. A ruling class sees nothing wrong with it. It's how they run the country. Mitt Romney refers to unwavering support for a finance-based economy and an internationalist foreign policy as the mainstream Republican view. And he's right about that. For generations, Republicans have considered it their duty to make the world safe for banking while simultaneously prosecuting ever more foreign wars. Modern Democrats generally support those goals enthusiastically. There are signs, however, that most people do not support this agenda, and not just here in America. In countries around the world, France, Brazil, Sweden, the Philippines, Germany, many others, voters suddenly are backing candidates and ideas that would have been unimaginable just a decade ago. These are not isolated events. What you're watching is entire populations revolting against leaders who refuse to improve their lives. 
Something like this has been happening in our country for the past three years. Donald Trump wrote a surge of popular discontent all the way to the White House. Does he understand the political revolution that he harnessed? Can he reverse the economic and cultural trends that are destroying America? Those are open questions. But they're less relevant than we think. At some point, Donald Trump will be gone. The rest of us will be gone too. The country will remain. What kind of country will it be then? How do we want our grandchildren to live? Those are the only questions that matter. The answer to them used to be obvious. The overriding goal for America is more prosperity, meaning cheaper consumer goods. But is that still true? Does anyone still believe that cheaper iPhones or more Amazon deliveries of plastic garbage from China are going to make us happy? They haven't so far. A lot of Americans are drowning in stuff, and yet drug addiction and suicide are depopulating large parts of the country. Anyone who thinks the health of a nation can be summed up in GDP is an idiot. The goal for America is both simpler and more elusive than mere prosperity. It's happiness. There are a lot of ingredients in being happy. Dignity, purpose, self-control, independence, above all, deep relationships with other people. Those are the things that you want for your children. They're what our leaders should want for us and would want if they cared. But our leaders don't care. We are ruled by mercenaries who feel no long-term obligation to the people they rule. They're day traders, substitute teachers. They're just passing through. They have no skin in this game, and it shows. They can't solve our problems. They don't even bother to understand our problems. One of the biggest lies our leaders tell us is that you can separate economics from everything else that matters. Economics is a topic for public debate. Family and faith and culture, meanwhile, those are personal matters. Both parties believe this. Members of our educated upper middle classes, now the backbone of the Democratic Party, usually describe themselves as fiscally responsible and socially moderate. In other words, functionally libertarian. They don't care how you live as long as the bills are paid and the markets function. Somehow they don't see a connection between people's personal lives and the health of our economy, or for that matter, the country's ability to pay its bills. As far as they're concerned, these are two totally separate categories. Social conservatives, meanwhile, come to the debate from the opposite perspective, and yet reach a strikingly similar conclusion. The real problem, you'll hear them say, is that the American family is collapsing. Nothing can be fixed before we fix that. Yet, like the libertarians they claim to oppose, many social conservatives also consider markets sacrosanct. The idea that families are being crushed by market forces never seems to occur to them. They refuse to consider it. Questioning markets feels like apostasy. Both sides in this miss the obvious point. Culture and, and economics are inseparably intertwined. Certain All right, Daniel. Systems allow families Pause to it for us. Thriving families make market economies possible. You can... So, this is where I want to go with you. Let's start with you, Darby. I hear that, and it's amen from the choir for me, that economics do impact the families day-to-day, -day, that there are market forces that can overwhelm. I say that from West Texas, where commodity markets can overwhelm family farms one at a time. Um, where do you think, what do you think about Tucker Carlson? thus far, Darby. What do I think about Tucker Carlson or what do I think about what he just said? What he just said. Oh. Um, I think it's interesting. I think that, you know, uh, there, I think over the last couple of decades we've seen Republicans 
con- the the word conservative has begun to be more Ayn Randian, like it, you know, to where it's almost as if, in fact, it exactly. If you look at the reactions to Tucker Carlson from the right, from many on the right, um, they to treated this. it to yeah. that exact his statements in this monologue. They treated it as though he was a preacher who came out and said that Jesus Christ wasn't the only way to the kingdom of heaven. That he somehow went against scripture, the word of God. He wasn't genuflect to markets. Well, I don't even know what genuflect means. Like, so I have to speak in, in, in simpler terms than that. Um, they treat it, they treat the the like free markets are definitely an ideal and there's something to work toward but we exist in a situation where there aren't free markets we exist in a situation where we put the ideology of free markets and the worship of free markets uh, above our own communities conservatism rather than conserving something has begun to mean putting the interests of business above our own citizens to where like now if you believe in a border now if you believe in in helping american workers over anyone else's workers well now you're against the free market now you're a socialist or a prairie communist or a prairie socialist or you're, you're something bad when when in the past and, and this has not always been this way but in the past conservatives oftentimes would use the power of government to conserve or to to protect an american worker or to put america first and that has, we've watched the Republican Party become more and more and more corporatist over several decades. And we've watched the Republican Party begin to put the pursuit of free market above even the pursuit of, of Jesus, you know, yeah. on the right. The free market has become something as though it was, it was a third of the book of Revelation and the last couple chapters of the book of Matthew or something, the Gospel of Matthew. And so what you see happening is you see the stranglehold that that ideology has on, on Republicans as a whole beginning to break down. You see that beginning to break down and you see there are still those Republicans who are like, no, free market, he just insulted the free market. Where, where the, the, the pursuit of free market and the concept of the free market is used to bash anyone upon the head. Right? We talked about this previously. It's similar to stuff we always say. When we see, and, and I'm not to bash him, I'm not trying to bash him, but you see Michael Quinn Sullivan, you see Empire Texans, Tim Dunn, that, that political network loved Rick Perry even though he used the power of government to engage in economic development in, in 10 to 15 predominantly white suburban, well-off suburban Republican uh, uh, areas of Texas on the other side of Texas. But then when we say we want some economic development here, we want the power of government to help with some job creation out here, well, then you're a prairie socialist, and then you're a leftist because you want to use the power of government for, to in any way change at the economic situation or the economic, um, the economic uh, uh, value a region might have. But yet they, they're totally okay doing it when it comes to, to their own people. And so what you saw was the power... Or that, their own donors. But what you saw is the... What you saw is the... You saw the, the concept of free market being used to bash people upon the head. And what's happening is that stranglehold is being broken and people can question and go, hey, wait a minute. 
maybe we should care a little bit more about the American worker whose unemployment benefits we pay and whose health care we have to subsidize instead of we, maybe we should care more about them than we do about the Chinese worker and we should let the Chinese, Chinese people and their government care about their worker like they already do. Maybe we should put our own communities first. Maybe we should use the power of government to back up our farmers in a, in a situation where other governments are backing up their farmers and our farmers are having to compete against them because that's really what we've done. And I'm a big free market guy myself, but like I, for instance, I, I also, that doesn't mean that, that I think it, that I'm liaison-faire and I think that we shouldn't have intervention. And so what Tucker's doing is he's challenged from the, the pulpit of Fox News, he's challenging the orthodoxy of, or the, the worship of unrestrained free markets. And that's what he's doing. I think, it's, I, think, I think it's a good thing with my views. Uh, but like folks at the National Review, the ones who, who harbored Kevin Williamson's uh, trashing of, of rural communities, uh, they, they were pretty outraged at Tucker Carlson. They felt mm-hmm. the need to call him out on it. Yeah, uh, a victimhood populism, as it were. Get into that a little bit more. Take a quickie break and get back in Coach Poe and Brandon Darby in studio with us. Stick right where you are here on the other side of Texas. We're back. Back in the studios where Buddy Holly became famous. This segment's brought to you by Title One, Lubbock's digital real estate and title escrow company. Title One is committed to providing you with the highest level of communication and service from the time the contract opens until it closes. See how Title One can serve your realty, consumer, and lending needs at TitleOne.com. Talking about prairie populism, populism, Tucker Carlson, populism, and economics is... We're back in, and uh, Carlson, we're listening to a monologue that's gone viral and getting some feedback here from Brandon Darby, managing editor of Breitbart, Texas, Coach Poe, uh, one of our regular guests, and I want to get back in with Carlson, Daniel, the digital guru. Cue us back up on Carlson, and he's talking about economics and culture and how you cannot divorce the two. I want to talk about that from West Texas. Ready when you are. Not separate the two. It used to be possible to deny this, but it's not anymore. The evidence is now overwhelming. How do we know? Consider the inner cities. 30 years ago, conservatives looked at Detroit and Newark and many other places, and they were horrified by what they saw. Conventional families had all but disappeared in poor neighborhoods. The majority of children were born out of wedlock. Single mothers were the rule. Crime and drugs and disorder became universal. What caused this nightmare? Well, liberals didn't even want to acknowledge the question. They were benefiting from the disaster in the form of reliable votes. Conservatives, though, had an explanation for inner city dysfunction, and it made sense. Big government. Decades of badly designed social programs had driven fathers from the home and created what conservatives called a culture of poverty that trapped people in generational decline. Well, there was truth in this, but it wasn't the whole story. How do we know? Well, because virtually the same thing has happened decades later to an entirely different population. In many ways, rural America now looks a lot like Detroit. This is striking because rural Americans wouldn't seem to have very much in common with anyone from the inner city. The groups have different cultures, different traditions, different political beliefs. Usually they have different skin colors. Rural people are white conservatives, mostly. 
Yet the pathologies of modern rural America are familiar to anyone who visited downtown Baltimore in the 1980s. Stunning out-of-wedlock birth rates, high male unemployment, a terrifying drug epidemic. Two different worlds, similar outcomes. How did this happen? Well, you'd think our ruling class would be deeply interested in knowing the answer, but mostly they're not. They don't have to be interested. It's easier to import foreign labor to take the place of native-born Americans who are slipping behind. But Republicans now represent rural voters. They ought to be interested. And here's a big part of the answer. Male wages declined. Manufacturing, a male-dominated industry, all but disappeared over the course of a generation. All that remained in many places were the schools and the hospitals, and both of them are traditional employers of women. In many areas, women suddenly made more than men. Now, before you applaud that as a victory for feminism, consider some of the effects. Study after study has shown that when men make less than women, women generally don't want to marry them. Now, maybe they should want to marry them, but they don't. Over big populations, this causes a drop in marriage, a spike in out-of-woodlock births, and all the familiar disasters that inevitably follow. More drug and alcohol abuse, higher incarceration rates, fewer families formed in the next generation. This is not speculation. It's not propaganda from the evangelicals. It's social science. We know it's true. Rich people know it best of all. That's why they get married before they have kids. That model works. But increasingly, marriage is a luxury only the affluent in America can afford. And yet, and here's the bewildering and infuriating part, those very same affluent married people, the ones who make virtually all the decisions in our society, are doing pretty much nothing to help the people below them get and stay married. Rich people are happy to fight malaria in Congo, but working to raise men's wages in Dayton or Detroit, that's crazy. This is negligence on a massive scale. All right, Dave. Both parties ignore the crisis in marriage. Our okay, so this is where I'm going to kick it up. I just did my real estate exam, passed it first time. Congratulations. Abernathy ISD. Thank you very much. You, you're <laughs> going to give Abernathy ISD the credit? Yeah, I will give them the credit this time because okay. there's a lot of discredit that could come with me as well. But <laughs> this is where I want to kick in here that there is and was, was and is a time in this country where the government saw upon itself that you can enable the working class and that it would seep up to the classes that rest upon it. And I cite the real estate exam to say Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, that we are going to guarantee, the government will, after the Depression, the government will guarantee home loans by people who cannot put down 40% and pay that loan over seven, you want to talk about, over seven years, you want to talk about where economics and families are intertwined, it's in their very home and whether or not they can have right to a home. And Brandon, I'll kick it off and then punt over to you, coach. But there was a time where we saw that economics could impact people in their day-to-day -day lives. And I don't, I look at this whole reality looking from West Texas where public education plays a role that it does, higher education, not just in economics, but in the composition of family incomes, uh, in agriculture, and then in medical. Uh, what do you make of this divorce, Brandon, that you, know, you ought to just... Because, as you said earlier, Carlson's monologue has been blasted as victimhood populism, 
uh, by folks from the right, but the government does serve a role. And I don't want to I mean, go on Williams, some, Jennings, Bryan here, but some folks from the right. I mean, Breitbart. I don't know the exact numbers, but what do we have? Like forty-five million readers a month, and we're far surpassed the National Review. And uh, we didn't blast him, you know. So what? That's what my point is that the right doesn't agree with the National Review. Some people on the right do. I agree with much of the National Review, but not all of it, you know. So the right didn't blast him. I get what you're saying. I, you know, I, I listen to what he's saying about marriage. I'm not so sure. <clears throat> I think there's an economic, uh, economic opportunity issue going on. I think that that our country and corporatists engage in economic opportunities and creating economic opportunities that they call, uh, they call uh, what do they call it? Um, they don't call it um, economic development. They call it. Um, <clears throat> You know, subsidies are, are are motivating businesses to to incentivizing, uh, incentivizing businesses. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think that's more of an issue. He takes it to marriage. I don't know that that's the case. I I think that you know when we look at marriage and we look at the percentage of marriages that end in divorce and people end up broke and dividing their assets. I there's a, so I'm not I'm not so sure that I agree with him on that, and I don't know that the scientists say the social scientists show us this beyond a a, a, a shadow of a doubt. I, I think that um, I think the issue really is economic opportunity and and um, and not accepting the status quo that that you know because of corporate interests that we should all just move to the city now and not have uh food and fiber production or what have you i don't agree with that but i don't i don't know that i buy that it has to do with uh you know with uh, a breakdown of the nuclear family i think that that might be a symptom of other things you know? well let's make another court because you and i on and offline of you know, all, there's always a danger whenever you get into populism that you're anti-minority or, or this, that, and the other. But you have made a great argument. I'm going to Austin this week to talk on a panel of urban counties. Mm -hmm. The interests that rural in that rural regions, you live close to level and, and urban yeah, and urban inner cities have in common. Very much so. And what 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 happens is. And this is historically, but it's happening now. What happens is is predominantly white, well-off people move to suburbs, and um, and then we start to see all of our policies as a nation benefit predominantly white, wealthy people in suburbs. Um, if if predominantly white, wealthy people were moving to inner cities, we would start to see predominantly white, wealthy people move to inner cities. Like when in the case of Austin, you have the majority of predominantly white, wealthy people moving into Austin, so then that forces a majority of black and brown people out of Austin, right? Uh, because they can't afford to live there, you know? Um, that's a different scenario altogether, but what I'm saying is is, is we, we tend to have policies that promote that, and then the groups who are funded by those predominantly white suburban people uh, then begin to promote that as well and attack those who, who, have, uh, who have arguments against what's occurring. I do think that inner cities have a lot in common right now with with rural areas, uh, not limited to, but 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 in the way that that a lot of the policies in Texas, for instance, we look at the public school policies and we look at what some in Texas are trying to do with vouchers. 
that screws inner cities and that screws rural Texans. You know, that, that's one thing that they have in common. Um, and it, it probably doesn't screw people who are, are well off living in the suburbs, have uh, one partner working, one partner at home who want to homeschool or who want to um, send their kids to a private school. It probably doesn't hurt them. It actually probably helps them, but them does not represent the majority of Texans. Hmm. Coach Poe. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And as Brandon's talking, those are the wheels that are going in my head, obviously, because of what I do and thinking. And I've heard you and I've even talked about this, about how a voucher program could, um, in, in all reality, kill a rural school. Uh, and and I think, too, when you talk about how, how that the vouchers would potentially help, I think that there it, there's more harm at this point than there is something that would help. And I, I don't know what the numbers would be, but I think the, the people who would be able to um, qualify and actually use a voucher would be way, way less than the people who would, would need. Um, I'm fortunate enough to where the, I, I like the district that I work in. That's where my kids go to school. Uh, and not everybody gets that luxury. And not everybody has that. And I Or has accessibility to a private school. Exactly. And I totally understand that. I just wonder if if the roles were reversed, um, and I have you know I have three boys, and let's say that my oldest son is the smarter of all three, my middle son's probably not as academically well off as as his older brother, but you know this private school um, X Y Z Academy would take Jacob, his voucher would work there, and but it might not pay for the entire school. Whereas they would say, well, you know, we really don't want Ty. Like, can they they could reject him, and it, the voucher wouldn't help there. And so I, I see I see both sides of it, and and I. Well, there's other sides of it though. It's not just it's it's more than two dimensions. Like it's more than pro public school or or pro voucher. There's a whole bunch of other aspects to it. There's other facets. Picture it like a. Um, uh, there's there's. If anything, it's more. It's it's definitely three dimensional. Like I homeschool my daughter. I homeschool my daughter. I also am not in favor of vouchers. People say, well, that's just no. It's not ridiculous at all. Like I come from it from a from a couple of different angles. One of those angles that I come from it. I I come. Th there has been a conservative movement to have the local public schools boards more controlled by by the local people for many decades in the state of Texas. Now, if you go into a voucher system, there's two things you're going to have to do for it to actually work. One is you're going to have to somewhat you're going to have to have a state board who regulates whether or not what's being taught at home schools or the private schools meets the criterion for the voucher because it's public money. Yeah. Like that's the, it's not private. People say no, that's my money. I'm getting back. No, if it goes to the public and then to you, it becomes public money. That's how it's that's how it works. So so one thing is you're going to instead of having uh, a movement toward local school boards to have more 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 power over what they're taught. You're going to have a small group of people of bureaucrats in the state now who are who are getting to determine what's taught. And not only are you going to have that, but all the private schools. It's just going to be just like with solar energy or renewable energy. You know, if it costs ten thousand dollars for me to go solar, and then the government says we'll pay for we'll pay for half of your six thousand dollars towards your so solar. Now all of a sudden it costs sixteen thousand dollars for me to have solar. So in order for 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 
the very socialistic program of the government giving you money, in order for that to happen, they're also going to have to engage in price fixing, which is against the free market. And like they, it, it, they can't do like what they want to do with vouchers without, without engaging in a bunch of things yeah. that they criticize. So I come from, I, I get what you're saying, but I come from it from a very different angle. I choose to homeschool a, a couple of reasons. One is, is just things in my daughter's life. Um, my career allows me to do that. And I also think it's important that I have the right that that, and I say have the right that my right to my, what I teach my child that I embrace that. But that's because I'm a rare person who has a career where I can, because I have a career where I work from home and I have an I, I've I'm in a certain position in that career and I have an employer who's supportive of it. Most people don't have that. Yeah. Most people don't have that ability um, at all to do that. But in my situation, I can. Um, but you're in a, a special situation, and I think Jay is too, where your kids are in public schools in Lubbock, Texas. might be a very different situation if your kids were in public schools in South Chicago. You might be like, hey, I don't want my kid. I want some other option, and I get that. Or um, even Houston ISD yeah. for that matter. Or some places in right Houston now. for sure, yeah. right. But, but what I'm saying is it's very complicated, and there's all these different facets. And, and, and uh, I agree with you, though. Like, I, I don't. I don't like paying taxes, no, but I recognize that I live in, just like I live in Hockley County, I don't just pay taxes for the road that I live on. I pay taxes for for a, a lot of roads in Hockley County because I recognize for my road to do okay, it means that there has to be pavement on other roads in the county too. And when I pay taxes for a public school, I recognize what happens in a society when I don't. When people like me who have don't pay some taxes for a public school, we end up like what, what we have in, in uh, inner city New Orleans. And we end up what we have in South Louisiana as a whole. Whenever it's a different situation, it wasn't directly vouchers, but in that situation when, when they integrated public schools, most of the white people who owned property took their, they either moved to out external, they either moved outside of the city or they changed the laws to where basically because they pay for private school, they just said, okay, we're going to pay almost nothing in property taxes anymore. And that's how the, the, the schools were funded by the local property taxes. So the inner city schools were left without any money. And now you have a situation, like especially in New Orleans, where, you know, that's great. You got to keep a lot of money and you didn't pay any property taxes and you sent your kid to private school. And now your kid is getting, can't drive an SUV anywhere without getting robbed or getting mm -hmm. killed or getting because people if you don't have some education available people uh, it, it has some very detrimental impacts on society as yeah. a whole which begs the question of what are what are we doing about public schools and financing public schools that's of course a big issue coming up into the legislature going to take a quickie break here daniel the digital guru going to get us out in a break be right back with you here just a minute or two. Stick with us right here, Other Side of Texas. The Other Side of Texas is sponsored by the law firm of Mullen Horton Brown, LLP, with offices in Lubbock, Amarillo, and Dallas, employing creative legal solutions to address your business needs in the areas of commercial litigation, banking, financial restructuring, employment law, and real estate planning. Have our friend Brandon Darby, head honcho of... Uh, how should we should I say head honcho or just managing editor Breitbart Texas? Uh, say whatever you want to say. Head honcho. 
Breitbart, Texas, Coach Poe over here as well. Talking about some economic populism today. I think a topic that needs to be discussed more and more in West Texas. Tucker Carlson, a viral monologue. Daniel, the digital guru, if you will queue up. Let's listen to a couple of minutes here and then we will riff away on it here in studio. Endless cultural leaders act like it's still 1961. And the biggest problem American families face is that sexism is preventing millions of housewives from becoming investment bankers or Facebook executives. For our ruling class, more investment banking is almost always the answer. They teach us it's more virtuous to devote your life to some soulless corporation than it is to raise your own kids. Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook wrote an entire book about this. Sandberg explained that our first duty is to shareholders above our own children. No surprise there. Sandberg herself is one of America's biggest shareholders. Propaganda like this has made her rich. What's remarkable is how the rest of us responded to it. We didn't question why Sandberg was saying this. We didn't laugh in her face at the pure absurdity of it. Our corporate media celebrated Sheryl Sandberg as the leader of a liberation movement. Her book became a bestseller, Lean In, as if putting a corporation first is empowerment. It is not. It is bondage. And Republicans should say so. They should also speak out against the ugliest parts of our financial system. Not all commerce is good. Why is it defensible to loan people money they can't possibly repay? Or charge them interest that impoverishes them? Payday loan outlets in poor neighborhoods collect 400% annual interest. Are we okay with that? We should not be. Libertarians tell us that's how markets work. Consenting adults making voluntary decisions about how to live their lives. Okay, but it's also disgusting. If you care about America, you ought to oppose the exploitation of Americans, whether it's happening in the inner city or on Wall Street. And by the way, if you really loved your fellow Americans, as our leaders should, it would break your heart to see them high all the time, which they are. A huge number of our kids, especially our boys, are smoking weed constantly. You may not realize that because new technology has made it all but odorless, but it's everywhere. And that's not an accident. Once our leaders understood they could get rich from marijuana, marijuana became ubiquitous. In many places, tax-hungry politicians have legalized or decriminalized it. Former Speaker of the House John Boehner now lobbies for the marijuana industry. His fellow Republicans seem fine with that. Oh, but it's better for you than alcohol, they tell us. Maybe. Who cares? Talk about missing the point. Try having dinner with a 19-year-old who's been smoking weed. The life is gone. Passive, flat, trapped in their own heads. Do you want that for your kids? Of course not. Then why are our leaders pushing it on us? You know the reason, because they don't care about us. When you care about people, you do your best to treat them fairly. All right, our leaders don't Daniel. Try. They hand out jobs and contracts. Pause it for us. So now the let's step aside from the drug issue, payday lending, and I do. He's speaking on populist terms. So let's go to something that we ought to know well, and that's William Jennings Bryan's um, "Cross is a Gold" speech, and he who, says wait, this: "Who ought to know that well? Well, like what percentage of your oh, we should know well? Is what y'all got? We okay. should. We yeah. should know well. Okay. You wish we were to know well. You wish there are well. two ideas of government. There are those who believe it that." If you just legislate to make the well-to-do well prosperous, that their prosperity will leak through on those below, that 
his idea has been, the Democratic idea at that time, has been that if you legislate to make the masses prosperous, their prosperity will find its way through every class that rests upon it. Carlson's argument is that leaders don't care. Uh, Darby, you take this first. Do political leaders in America not care now about their constituencies? Well, I think we're in a, in a tricky situation. I, I think, you know, if we're talking about Texas or if we're talking about the United States, it's, it's really talking about two different things in a, in a way. Um, I think there's a balance somewhere in there. You know, there's a balance like historically it is true if someone were to stay historically when we go too far towards socialism or social programs, you can't have programs through the government that help without increasing the size of government. Historically, when you increase the size of government too much, government fails, people end up destitute, um, and historically people use that power of government to be very abusive. Um, that is true. At the same time, historically, when you get out of the way and you have no government intervention, we end up with some really bad situations as well. Uh, there's a reason that we have antitrust laws. There's a reason that we have, uh, that we have an EPA. You know, the, the back in the day before we had gasoline-powered engines, you know, when gasoline, gasoline was a byproduct and it was pumped into our rivers and lakes. You know, in the 70s and early 80s, like, you couldn't even get into Lake Erie. You know, it was so polluted in the Hudson River. And, like, there's a reason that, that we have, there's a reason that government has intervened. Because of excesses. Why you can't live reason, in the Canyon Lakes in Lubbock. And there's a reason that people are freaked out by too much government. Because that's a problem too. Like with most things in life, there's a balance somewhere. And, and we can argue about where that balance is. But what Tucker is speaking out against is against those people that refuse to, refuse to allow anyone to debate the balance. He's talking about those who, who, who are in positions of power, like look at the Koch brothers. And I have a history, like I've been paid by AFP, which is uh, to do speeches before, which is the Koch brothers uh, nonprofit, right? Americans for Prosperity. And I agree with a lot of what Americans for Prosperity says. I agree that, that we, should, we, should, we should always listen to those who want to limit government. And, and, but, but where I disagree with them is that we should also listen to those who want more, want to use government to engage in more programs and not demonize them either. But what they do is if, if you do not, if you in any way challenge the free market, then you are, you are anathema to them. And if you in any way challenge that, like so, so what he's calling out of those who, who refuse to allow the argument to take place or the discussion to take place uh, you experienced that in Texas. I experienced that in Texas. You're a prairie socialist because you've been called that because you you ask for the same economic development that benefited the other side of Texas to be used over here, and then all of a sudden you're a prairie socialist, right? But they weren't socialists. Rick Prairie wasn't a Perry wasn't a socialist when he used the power of government to encourage economic development in an area and create opportunity. But you're a socialist if you want that same effort to be made over here with the power of government and, and, and rural Texans. And all of a sudden you're a socialist. And, and so he's calling that out. He went off on some tangent about marijuana, which I find to be really inconsistent and bizarre, um, that he would do that and why he would take an otherwise 
really great argument and and turn half of the people off who would be into it. I don't know, but that's that's him. That's what he did. Uh, but his economic argument, I think, makes a lot of sense. Coach Poe, anything to throw in here? I'm I'm agreeing with Brandon on a lot of things tonight. It's like we've been knowing each other our whole life. We okay. should do that DNA test, man. We should. We could yeah. be. Maybe we'd find out things that way. First cousins. Uh, let's get into a break. Get this thing carried in to the barn. Daniel, uh, stick with us about 90 seconds. Be right back here on Other Side of Texas. Welcome back in this segment brought to you by Lubbock File Room, providing safe and secure document storage and shredding services to Lubbock and the surrounding area since 1992. What do you got? Don't let them know what you got for a free and hassle-free estimate called lubbockfileroom.com, 806 744-7666. So, that, sorry, that's my little alarm going off on my phone. Um, but I want to close... It sounded good. It sounded like it was the end of the commercial. Close yeah. out on here is Rome. Republicans are in charge now. Man, let's just speak from a Texas basis. Uh, Republicans are in charge of of the rural regions in which they're elected out of. Um, Brandon Darby, what is the onus now? Do you think the Republican Party has to begin to think more pragmatically about utilizing the levers of government, or does it continue to go with what I'll call, not you, rotting flesh Reaganism, we've got to open up markets, open up money, and uh, do that at the cost of the common good. I don't see. I don't like that. Like, like it was a different time. Like he existed in a different situation. He Reagan existed at a time. But people will still say you've got to follow that model. And here we are in the midst of globalism, something that Donald Trump was elected on to say. What about the American middle class worker? Well, forget them because we can get them in Beijing or Taiwan or elsewhere. But but but, but to associate it. I mean, I get it, but it. Reagan existed at a different time in a different set of circumstances in a different set of tax rates in a different set of a lot of things, right? Like, like Reaganism has won. And so, so the, the, but I get you, there was clotted government, there was right. law bill, there, was, there were a lot of a things lot of that need to so, be deconstructed. So again, where, but, like, but there I was want, a different, but why does he get invoked today in policy every which, well, I'm well, a Reagan guy, it, I'm a Reagan, well, it's a different but, but age. people manipulate it, and I'm not, Reagan was largely successful, and so what I argue is that there are things that we need to use the power of government for. No one disagrees with me. They just, a lot of people just want it used for their things and not for the things for other people. So I advocate... The Those beneath of, them. I, and I don't know about necessarily beneath them, but, 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 but who might be economically beneath them, yes. And, and so there are some things, like for instance, I'm a defender of public schools, but that doesn't mean that just because public schools ask for more money, I think we ought to just keep giving it, giving it, and giving it, and have no restrictions on it, and have no, um, you know, like I support public education. Does that mean I support, does that mean I think kids should be at schools for 10 hours a day? No. Does that mean I think that I, my taxes should pay for kids to be at school 10 hours a day? No. 
Uh, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean a carte blanche, like I'm either on this side or that side. It's a complicated issue. Like most things in life, there are balances. Should we use the power of government uh, in, in situations to benefit uh, rural areas? I, in a lot of cases, I think we should. Does that mean we should just carte blanche, throw money at it, and not restrict the power of government, not have limitations on that government? No, it does not mean that. And so what we're, we're left with is one side who says, who, who the, if you, and I say one side, and I, what I mean is the majority of their politicians and their push, they demonize anybody that's, that wants to question government or challenge the power of government, and they demonize you and use ad hominems to attack you if you question it. If I don't, if I don't agree with every increase in public school spending, then I hate children. And then on the other side, if I agree that there should be any public school spending, then I hate children and I hate America and I'm a socialist. And there are these two extremes. And like most things in life, there really are a lot, there's a lot more nuance and a lot more details that we need to understand and a lot more room we need to make for having discussions. Uh, so, so I get what you're saying, but I, to, you know, to call it rotting flesh Reagan I'm just I'm not there man I'm not I, I, I don't I, I don't I don't I think that that's bastardized quite a bit you know if um, if somebody were to come to me and say you know Reagan supported increasing nukes this much and Reagan and it's like well yeah but that's because he was up against a foe who did uh, do we still have a foe who is increasing uh, their nuclear capacity uh nuclear warhead capacity as much as the Soviets were in 1982? No, we don't. So, mm -hmm. so that doesn't mean that I'm anti-Reagan because, because I don't support us you know, spending X amount of our GDP increasing our nuclear warhead capacity, uh, but it also doesn't mean that somebody's pro-Reagan because they do. He existed in a different set of circumstances yeah. with different world well, and economic situations. The the term coin there, rotting flesh Reaganism, R.R. Reno, first things, public theology, conservative public theology, made the argument that what Cruz campaigned on in 2016 against Trump was rotting flesh Reaganism. That this was an economic system that was from the past, as you say, two decades, maybe three decades old, that didn't work today. And that whenever Trump talked about trade... He was, he was revolting against that old Reagan idea in a new age, and that's why he picked up the votes that he did in the South. Well, I think to some extent, but I also think Cruz, the the you know Cruz today versus who Cruz was during the Obama administration when the central push of government was to absolutely have unchecked irregular migration to absolute if we it, to abs to intervene much more than probably is healthy in the economy. Uh, if we look at, like, we could talk about one-offs, like Solyndra. We could talk about, you know, like, do I support green energy? Yes, I do. Does that mean I support just carte blanche, just throw all kinds of money at cronies who happen to have a, a company that says they're green energy? No, I don't. Mm -hmm. And and so, so Cruz made those comments at a time when we had a president who was a lot more left of center than I am. And uh, like, like, like he's way out there when it comes to intervention in the economy. Uh, even Obama would say like, hey, like uh, it needs to be a market-based economy with intervention. 
And I would agree with that, except he wants a lot more intervention than I'm comfortable with. He had a lot of views about that I'm uncomfortable with. Well, Cruz made those comments during that time. Even the situation we were in as a nation four or three years ago is different than the one we're in right now. Coach Poe, any closing thoughts? Man, I just feel like I uh, have learned more in today than I have in a long time and really enjoyed it and think that uh, a lot of people my age and younger could glean a lot from these conversations that are being had. Well, that's why we say thanks for tuning in and telling friends that you hang out here on Other Side of Texas. We do it for folks about our age. I want to uh, say something before we go, go. Go ahead. You know, this has been a great conversation today, Coach. And and the only thing I would leave with, I want to tell people, like, when people are trying, whether it's on the left or the right, and they're trying to degrade another human being so you don't listen to their discussion or have a discussion with them, like, reject that, man. Just reject it outright. When someone's like, oh, well, he's a socialist, or, oh, he's a right-wing racist nut, or he's a, you know, d just reject that outright. Like, so you can actually have these conversations. Because these conversations, there's a hundred things I've said today, and this just in this podcast, that, that Media Matters for America or some like, like nutty lefty site, who, by the way, sometimes makes good arguments, you should read them too. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But there's a hundred things they could take out of context and attack me for from the left. And there's a hundred things I've said today that people from the right could take out of context and attack me for so that you don't listen to this podcast or so you don't listen to me or you don't listen to Jay. Or you, and, and that type of behavior, that type of argument stopping is, is exactly what we need to say no to so we can have these conversations and people can talk about most things in life are complex. They're not black and white. They're not yes or no. They're not uh, this or that, white or red. Or they're, they're not that. Most things in life are, are, are being discussed by two polar opposites who are at extremes. And neither one is usually being very honest or, or is not being completely honest. And you have to listen to both and have a conversation about it in between them in order to hear it. Good point. And I think that's what a younger generation wants. And that's what we try to bring. Follow us along, othersideoftexas.com, Facebook, Other Side of Texas, on Twitter, at OSTX Show. And thank our friends, Coach Poe and Brandon Darby, signing off for them. Gonna get home, gotta get home, great family. Above average dinner. Until next time, my friends, rave on, buddies, rave on. Break on the mountain